Thanks. Would you join me in prayer? Father, for the opportunity to worship, we give you thanks. As part of our worship now, we want to come to the text, come to your scriptures, which we recognize are alive, are ready to teach us if we would only be ready to hear it. That's our hope. Our hope is that these words, which we pray uh, through the Holy Spirit, become your word. We pray that these would shake things up in our hearts. Whatever is kind of languishing in us, a desire for more courage, a hope for the future, a hope for our children or for marriage or for community, as, as Nicolette just articulated, a hope for a place to belong. May all these things be brought into play as we speak now about your Holy Spirit and the incredible ability to provide. Thank you, God, for these moments. May the words in my mouth and the things that we consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, all of you who are type A's, I'd messed with the outline, so be prepared. You will have to scratch a few things out. I'm not apologizing. Uh, we're in a sermon series on time because it is, like we mentioned a while ago, a movement toward Easter right now. Easter's April 21st, in case you want to mark your calendars. That's a good day to be here in worship and to bring a friend. Um, we're looking at how Jesus specifically relates to time, which is interesting. He talked about time a lot. My time has not yet come. He said that to his mother at the first miracle that he ever performed uh, at the wedding in Cana. He would talk about how my time is coming, my time has arrived. He had a deep sense of it. We live in a world that cares a lot about time. I remember reading an article years ago, I think it was in Forbes or something that I hardly ever read, where a bunch of businesses were starting to agree on this idea that even more important than their ultimate bottom line as companies was time. That that was actually more valuable to them than the money that they were making. They were teaching their teams to sort of evaluate their processes based on time. We live in a world that cares a lot about this. And in today's passage, which we've probably all heard in different forms or taught on in different ways, there's a through line of time, but right next to that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you've never really read this passage this way, which I really hadn't until this week, I think you're going to be in for some really interesting stuff, some encouraging words here. The three words that come up in the text that I think categorize how we're going to think about time are the words now, customary, and today. So can you say those with me? Now, customary, and today. We're going to talk about what those things mean. They all relate to the Holy Spirit as well. Now, if you're like me, you may have grown up around a church or in kind of a community that like the Holy Spirit was there, but we kind of didn't talk about the Holy Spirit that much, like the weird uncle at the dinner party. Like, don't talk about him. He's not, you know, if you talk about him, he'll start talking to you. The Holy Spirit is so powerful and so incredible. And yet, I think for many uh, Christ followers, and it's certainly many outside the church, we kind of go, what is that? Like, what does that even mean? It says that Jesus was filled with the Spirit. What is that? Like, did he have, you know, certain beverages that he was imbibing? What is that talking about? Here's what I want to start with. I want to tell you all about what the Holy Spirit has actually meant to me. Um, funny enough, as I was reflecting on this uh, kind of earlier this week and then even early this morning, whenever I've had a really powerful experience with the Holy Spirit, it's often had something to do with water. Strangely enough, like places where I've gone in my life, where I've been near a river or near a lake or near the ocean, oftentimes the Holy Spirit has done something really incredible there. I don't know why that is. When I first became a Christ follower, I was 17, and I prayed for God to come into my life. I accepted Christ as Lord, and then I think about maybe six months or a year later, I started hearing about the Holy Spirit. I'd 
grown up in church, so maybe I'd heard of it intellectually, but never heard of it as this is part of what you should expect now as a follower of Jesus. Romans 8 talks about this, actually. When we follow Jesus Christ, we become children of the Spirit. That's what it says, that the Spirit kind of adopts us and brings us into the family and gives us a new identity. So I was starting to kind of feel my way around with this, and I'm sitting in my bedroom. It's late at night in high school, right? So picture 17-year-old me, 125 pounds, soaking wet, and I'm sitting in this little reading chair I had, and I'm just, I'm praying, and I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to ask for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come into my life. Nothing crazy happened. There was no sort of like shaking light fixtures, right? But what I would describe to you all is a feeling like, like there was this movement and a friendly one, not a weird one, a one that felt comfortable and okay to me, where it just felt like there's something moving now that wasn't here before. Later, I got the image in my mind of a river, right? When you stand in a river, the water kind of passes around you. It's flowing a different direction. If you're a fly fisherman, you know life is good. When you see the water around you, like, ah, this is where I belong, right? For my experiences with the Holy Spirit, I've had that, and I've also had the experience of feeling like the river was taking me somewhere. And the Holy Spirit can nudge us and can prompt us and say, have you thought about this? Like those little sort of flashes we get, is this my conscience? Is this the Holy Spirit? But I think if we look at the longer narrative of what the Holy Spirit has done, at least in my life, it feels like the times in my life when I've been in line with what the Holy Spirit was doing felt like I was following the path of a river. I was moving in a direction that I wasn't in control of, but where I belonged, where it was good. Where, where there was a sense of being moved towards something that I needed to be a part of. This has happened to me throughout college. This happened to me, over, it happens to me over and over again in my marriage when there's a temptation to kind of go, you know, maybe I'll tell a little white lie over here. Or maybe I'll kind of, you know, steer in this direction. That feeling of the Holy Spirit kind of moving me along, moving me in these different opportunities that I have, it still feels like a river. It still feels like something that's carrying me forward, away from telling a lie, away from telling things that are not good for me, away from stepping into things that would really break who I am as a person. And instead, it lines me up with what Christ desires for me. It's amazing. It is not of my design. I did not come up with the way that the Holy Spirit has flowed through my life. And maybe you can relate to that too. Maybe if you're a Christ follower, you're going, yeah, that kind of makes sense with me. That resonates with me. If not, hang with me because I think it will start to make more sense as we go along. We're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit works through now, this moment right in front of us, through the lens of what happened to Jesus after his temptation. We're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit works in this customary, ordinary, kind of everyday life. And then we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit's working today. And if you want to think of something that differentiates now from today, today is a period of time that you can get your arms around, right? Now is what's right in front of you. Today is this thing that you can kind of go, okay, I can picture what my day looks like today. Don't ask me about Tuesday. I'm not a Tuesday yet. But today, I can picture it. So for me, a theme, a visual of water. For us in this moment as a church, we have a theme and a visual as well where we are being pulled in so many different directions, are we not? Where there is like this tide and the tide pulls us out and it's busyness and it's over-functioning and it's working too much and it's all these things that every one of us either toys with or is susceptible to or we're actually kind of living into right now that are contrary to what the Holy Spirit wants for us. This is our hope, is that when we go through this text today, we'll kind of find that place where the river really carries us, where God wants us to be. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We were just here last week, amazingly enough. 
Last week we talked about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, which is in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 4, or excuse me, it's the beginning of Luke 4. Then we're kind of picking up in the middle of Luke 4. What we're going to do, though, is kind of look back for just a split second at that temptation in the wilderness. Remember, we talked about this last week. Jesus is taken out into the wilderness. He's tempted. He's hungry. He's tempted by quick fixes. Remember, that was the theme last week. What's the quick fix that's in front of you? Then when we get into today's text, we need to remember that there's some bookends to Jesus' story. The bookend that we're going to start with is in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1. This is how Jesus gets into the wilderness. He's not just sitting there one day thinking, I should go to the wilderness. This is what happens. Here, listen to what the text says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was filled with the Spirit. What had happened right before this, remember? Justin read this for us. His baptism, where the gift of identity, where the outpouring of the Father's love happened in such a powerful way for him. So he's filled up. He's excited. He is ready to go. And the Spirit says, I'm flowing in this direction. You need to come with me out into the wilderness. Now's the time for your challenges. He passes through the challenges. He comes the other side of it. And like the other end of a bookend, if the Holy Spirit calls him in in verse 1, turn with me now to 14 and 15 of chapter 4, the Holy Spirit pulls him out. So he's going into the wilderness in verse 1. Holy Spirit comes right back in, says, okay, it's time for you to go. Here's what it says in verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. He was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Time to come back out. Time to re-enter society. The principle that I want to lift up here is that a good leader is always a good follower. A good leader is always a good follower. Someone who is capable and gifted in their leadership also recognizes when it's time for them to follow somebody else. Jesus' ministry was always rooted in this. He was submitting to the Father. I have no will but my own. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. He was always submitting to the Father. And is there a more negative word in our culture than submission? We hate that word because we associate it with what? Defeat. You gave up. If you submitted, you gave up. You could have had your way, you could have done your thing, but you gave up, you submitted, you relented, you broke down. That's not what is happening in this passage. Jesus is submitting, and he does this throughout his ministry, like we would submit to the flow of a river. Like we would go, not giving up, trusting that the direction that we are being pulled in is the right one, is the one where we belong. Case in point is how Jesus responds when the Holy Spirit tells him, time to leave the wilderness. Now, if you're him and you've been starving for 40 days, you're going, oh, please, like, get me out of here. I'm done with wilderness. Thank you very much. He leaves the wilderness, but how's he feeling? He just had an amazing victory over the enemy. He just talked through every single point the enemy threw at him, right? It was like the greatest round, the greatest battle. They're going blow for blow. He's victorious, right? He raises, if you're into wrestling, he raises the championship belt. If you're not into wrestling, he raises the participation trophy. It's one shining moment. He's cutting down the net at the end of the NCAA tournament. Huge celebration. Eye of the Tiger's playing in the background. What do you go do after you start to hear Eye of the Tiger play? You go on to the next big thing. You're fired up. I just closed a huge deal. Give me the next deal. I just did something awesome with my, awesome with my kids. Where's the next thing? I want to go after it, right? The next big thing, NBT. Can you say that with me? NBT. We want the next big thing, do we not? And what does Jesus maybe thinking that NBT might be? 
Let's go to Rome. Let's go to the capital. Let's take this thing down from the very top. Let's go to the center of power and influence. Let's go there. That's the NVT. Or maybe he's thinking, I got to go to Jerusalem. My people need to know about this. I need to be at the center of our religious life. I need to teach. I need to lead. That's the NVT. What does the Holy Spirit tell him to do? He doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Paris. He goes to Nazareth. There is a joke in the Bible about how much of a backwater town Nazareth is. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Yes, there's humor in the Bible. And they're saying, Nazareth is so podunk, so forgotten, so out there in the sticks. Why would anyone or anything good ever come from Nazareth? It's a good thing none of us ever talk about little towns like this, right? Like, none of us have any of this in us. It's a backwater town, and the text says that's where he goes next. That's the NBT. That's the next big thing. Are you kidding? A one-stoplight town, barely with a gas station and a couple of trailer parks? Why would he go there? Because of our principle. Because good leaders are good followers. And he feels the movement of the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't ignore it. He steps into it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. This is an analogous passage to what we're reading. As Matthew has told the story of Jesus, so does Luke. Matthew recounts the temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of chapter 4. And this is his next step. This is what he says in Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. Why Jesus made this move to Galilee, to Nazareth, to this backwater podunk town. This is verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Same instance, same context. He's just had the great victory. What's the next big thing? Go to Nazareth? Go to his hometown? Go where people knew him as a carpenter's son, where they didn't think of him as Messiah? Why go there? It makes no sense. Unless you back up the camera lens just a little bit. I found a map of Galilee, of Nazareth, that I wanted to share with us this week. It's right there on the Sea of Galilee. And if you look at those red dots around the perimeter of the sea, those are all gigantic red dots. No, I'm kidding. Those are all cities and towns. This is actually a very densely populated area in the ancient Near East. There's a lot of people around this sea. And how do you get around if you live right near a lake, if you live right near a body of water and it's ancient times? You don't just drive. You don't just take roads. You have water routes as well. So if you're going to start a movement... If you're going to begin to do something transformative, don't you need to be around a lot of people? And don't you need to have access to a lot of people through reliable transportation? What does Jesus have right here at his back door? He's got it. He is in an incredibly strategic location. Perfect place to start a movement. Does this remind you of anything, by the way? A bunch of cities by a body of water. We're not necessarily taking the sea routes to get over to Seattle, but you know what I mean? 
Jesus found that by following the current, by following what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do, that God put him in the perfect place. And think about it too. This is his hometown. These are his people. If he's country, these are country people, right? This is who he's going to talk to with the words, with the language, with who he is and who he has been as his evidence of who God has called him to be. Every one of us in the room, y'all need to know this, you speak a very specific language called Eastsider. You have learned it, you have appropriated it over time, doesn't matter where you come from. If you're here, you have learned to speak this funny, delicate tongue called Eastsider. And you are perfectly positioned right where you are, in Bellevue and in Woodenville and in Issaquah and all the other towns that we call home, to see a gospel movement like what happened in that map. It is not an accident that we are off the 85th Street exit because we are right in the heart of the east side. It is not an accident that we come from all corners of the city. I can point out each one of y'all. You're coming from all different places around here and you know how to talk to your neighbors. You know how to speak words of blessing to them. And we'll talk about some practical steps toward that in a minute. But if you think that the Holy Spirit doesn't have a word and a work for you, Eastsiders, let me disaffect you of that notion. You are here for a purpose. We are here for a purpose. Jesus was sent to some backwater town. Well, we didn't get backwater. We got the suburbs. Let's take it. Let's do it. Let's bring the amazing message of Jesus to our friends and neighbors. Let's say, look, you got to see what God's doing. He's doing something miraculous in my life. He's doing something amazing at my church. He's doing something with the women's retreat, with men's Malibu. He is doing something. And our neighbors are dying to hear about these things because they're dying to know that they have a place to belong. And we can offer that. We may not have much, but we can offer that. So that's now. That's right in front of us. God is now saying to each one of us, you are where you are. You speak the language that you speak for the purposes that I have for you. Will you step into it now? Now, let's talk about the second part, customary. Can you say customary with me? This is where we're turning over expectations. We're going a little bit deeper into the story in Luke. So back to Luke's gospel with me. We're going to read verses 16 through 19. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, as was customary. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's he doing? It would have been ordinary for Jesus, like it is for so many of us, to come to a place of worship on a particular day of the week. And in Jesus' tradition, this was, this, this was the tradition he would have grown up with, that he would have adopted himself as an adult. You would have gone as a male to the synagogue to be a part of this teaching, to hear the scriptures being read, to hear a rabbi or someone else talk about it. And why was it Isaiah 61? I'd never heard about this until I got into the text this week. Why Isaiah 61? Why this amazing passage about what Messiah is going to do and who he's going to be? We taught on Isaiah 61 during Advent. It's an amazing passage. I'd encourage you to read it this week. Why that one? It wasn't just because Jesus showed up and he would say these words about the kingdom and what was coming. There was something else at work here. If you've done any kind of study of Old Testament history, you'll know that one of the key dates in the history of the nation of Israel, in the history of the ancient Near East, was 586 BCE. 
586 BCE. You look up any Old Testament history book, that is a big deal date. Anybody know why that was a big deal date, Old Testament scholars? It was the year of the destruction of the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Monumentally horrible day for the nation of Israel. This temple had taken centuries to build and these pagan invaders came and destroyed it in an instant. Their people were taken into captivity. Their whole way of life was just ravaged and gone. 586 BCE was not a good day in the history of Israel. And in the tradition that Jesus was a part of, there was a period of time called Tishbachav where the people of Israel remembered and lamented and mourned the destruction of the temple for three weeks every year. Three weeks. They would remember that the temple was part of their life together and then it was gone and they lamented that and they mourned it. The only analogy I could think of for us is 9-11. This is their 9-11. Every adult in this room knows where you were on 9-11. It is not a day we all forget. For the people of Israel, that date, which they assigned in their calendar, a little bit like a liturgical calendar, there was a three-week period of mourning because it was so devastating to them. And at the end of the three-week period of mourning of Tishbachav, Isaiah 61 was read. Because Isaiah 61, if Tishbachav is the pit, Isaiah 61 is how we come out of that pit. Because Messiah is coming. Because he will bring good news to the poor. Because he will provide recovery of sight to the blind. Because no matter how broken and busted up you are, Israel, he is coming for you. He is coming for you. And it just so happened that this carpenter from Nazareth showed up at the temple on the day that Isaiah 61 was read at the end of Tishbachav. And he said to the people, I'm here. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That was a normal day. That was a regular Sabbath day for those folks worshiping in that temple, but it was extraordinary. And one thing we know about Jesus is that there is no ordinary with him. There is no ordinary day. C.S. Lewis had this great line, you've never met an ordinary person. You've only met someone who reflects the image of God. That is what Jesus brings in this moment. It's a customary doldrums kind of day and he shows up and he says, actually, this is different. It is my time. And the question I have for us is, do we see our days like that? Are you going to look at Tuesday like a day when Jesus could show up? Or Wednesday? Or Thursday? You're going, I don't even know what day it is. It's, I, I'm at church. I guess it's Sunday. Okay. Do we count on him when we're in a season like our own Tishbachav? Maybe it's not been three weeks. Maybe it's been three months. Maybe it's been a year for you. You got a job and it is driving you crazy. They are asking so much of you and you took this job so you wouldn't have to have a whole lot asked of you and look at what's happened. Maybe you're in that season. Maybe you're in a season where one of your kids, you just, you don't, you don't get each other. You're barely communicating. It just seems like it's gone on like that forever. What, what do we do? What I think Jesus says to us in this passage is your hope is not the end of Tishbachav. Your hope is in me. Your hope is in who I am. What expectations did you bring to this battle, to this thing that you're fighting, to this period of darkness? That's great. I'm better. That's what he says to us. Whatever we have brought to the table, in whatever season we are facing, Jesus says, don't, don't believe that's the end of your story. I have more for you. This, this hits me personally because so often as a leader, I struggle with courage, with boldness, with naming something in the moment. 
I struggle with having vision. I struggle with taking risks. That has been, for me, kind of a version of tishbachav, just kind of going like, oh, when am I going to get this right? Has anyone ever felt that? When am I going to get this right? And the answer is not getting it right. The answer is trusting the one, to go back to the river analogy, who is leading me into the river, who is carrying me to the place, carrying us to the place where he wants us to be as a church, where he is calling you to be in your work and with your families and in your neighborhood. That is who we get to trust, not in some fancy pants solution, but in figuring out life through the lens of the Savior. That is what he's calling us to do in our ordinary. Will we be aware of it? Will we be awake when that happens? I hope so. Now, let's turn to the last part of our passage where we're talking about today. So we've talked about now. We've talked about the next big thing, NBT. It's not always what we think. We've talked about the customary, kind of anticipating these normal moments and asking Jesus to show up. Jesus, show up and change this moment for me. And finally, we're going to talk about this proclamation he gives, this scandalous word, starting in verse 20 of Luke 4. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You could hear a pin drop. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. That same word for today that he uses in that passage, we will pray together later when we say, Give us this day our daily bread. Today. Today is what he told his disciples to pray for. He didn't tell them to pray for barns full of grain and all this other stuff and stockpiling resources. He said, pray for today. Pray for the thing that you can get your arms around. For Jesus' audience, absolutely scandalous what he just said. If you read a little bit more of Luke 14, they get into a huge fight and they try to kill him. This is not a moment when Jesus is all peaceful and abiding by. He gets into a good fight with them. But at the end, they can't kill him. Why? Because today's not his day to die. His day is coming, but it's not his day. Today, this day, is not his day to die. And the application for us is really simple. I've, I've told you guys about this because it's just been so profound for me, and I hope it's encouraging as many times as you may have heard it. One of the biggest shifts that's happened in my life devotionally lately has been starting out each day saying, Jesus, you're in charge today. Today. I can't think about tomorrow. I have no control over yesterday. Today, my life belongs to you. My family belongs to you. My calling, my vocation belongs to you today. And the reason I can say that is I can get my arms around today. If I try to go way further off and all this, Jesus, I trust you with my kids, college, blah, 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 blah. No, today. Because I need to be a disciple today. And I need to remember who my Lord is today. And I got to tell y'all, making that move, asking that as imperfectly and as infrequently as I can changes my day. Because then I've kind of given up control. I've just said like, Jesus, you're in charge today. You got it. And I I wish I could say I'm better at reminding myself of that throughout the day. All throughout his ministry, Jesus' disciples struggled with the exact same thing that we do, who are disciples of Jesus. I forget that he's in charge. I forget that he's good. I forget that he's looking out for me. I forget, I get prideful, I'm called to trust, but I'm so easily distracted, I worry. Today, what's a step that you could take, church?
What's one thing that has just been pressing into you lately where you're going, oh, like if I could just surgically remove this, I would. And instead you turn around and starting tomorrow you go, Jesus, today you have this thing. Whatever it is, it's my students at school. It's my family. It's this crazy job that I have. It's this industry that I don't understand. It's the degree that I'm trying to get that I I hope I'm worthy of it. Today. Hold it out to God. You could do this when you go home later. But there is a faithful next step for each of us to take. And maybe it's just naming that thing that keeps tripping you up. Maybe it's just faithfully saying, Jesus, today I want to be used by you. And I feel like through the Holy Spirit, through this kind of being carried down the river like we talked about on Sunday, you want me to talk to my neighbors about you. Or you want me to go serve that widow that lives next door to me who's just, she's lost her husband and she is struggling. Whatever that faithful next step is, be assured that God has not hidden it from you. It is in front of you. It is in front of me. And all we are called to do is take that faithful next step today. So what could that be? You can get your arms around today, church. What will that be for you? What will be a faithful next step? If you want to write this down at the bottom of your bulletin, just say, my faithful next step is. And fill that out later. Write it down, because then it'll actually happen, right? So, now, customary, today, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear the call to pray, you're in charge of my life today, Jesus. But I want to finish with a story about how the Holy Spirit did something in me recently that I hope is an encouragement for all of us, because we've been talking about the Holy Spirit all morning. Yesterday, I was uh, working out with a group of friends. I've started going to this... uh, outdoor workout group called F3. It's for guys. It's uh, kind of a ministry, kind of not. There's some Christians involved with it, some not, but it's, it's really great. We go outside, we run around, rain or rain is kind of the motto, and we just do outdoor stuff, right? So there's no gear involved. There's no money changing hands. It's just this free thing. It's an opportunity for men to connect, and it's a really tough workout, so yesterday we ran from Kirkland Middle School down to Waverly Beach, which is quite hilly, And we're doing stuff along the way, push-ups and sit-ups and all this kind of stuff. And we're running back. The sun is coming up over the trees, right? Because it's finally spring and the sun is out. And I, I run by some houses and I smell the smells of spring. So flowers and grass clippings from someone that got up really early to mow their lawn. And wood chips, like all those great smells, you know, that we smell right now. They're so wonderful. And one of the things I love about F3 is there are men as young as like 14 in our groups, and then there's guys in their 60s and 70s. And we all stay together. We all keep pace with one another. It's not a competition with each other. It's all of us doing this together in a group. And there's this older guy, I'll call him Stan. He's just keeping up with us. He's doing great. He's having a great time. And at the end, it's, it's starting to get to all of us, but especially for him. So we all run with Stan, we finish together, and at the end of our workouts, we always have this chance to kind of share something that's going on in our lives, something that uh, is encouraging, share a word of encouragement with each other, or just to ask for something. And so at the end of our workouts, Stan, one of the oldest guys in the group, says, hey, I need some advice. And you've been in group settings before, right, where someone says something like that and everything else stops, and you go, we need to listen to what's going on over here. There's 11 of us in the group yesterday. And Stan says, I need some advice. My wife has cancer. Again. She's probably going to have to have a double mastectomy, and I don't know what to do. 
And you've been in situations, I know we have all been in these situations, where someone shares something so vulnerable and so heavy, and you go, I don't think he said that to anybody. I don't think he's had any place in his life to get that out. I really don't. What do we do with that? And so in the moment, the Holy Spirit starts to kind of nudge me, and the picture I get in my head is I'm picturing praying with Stan and his wife in their living room. And I don't know why I pictured that. I think it was more like if he's in my congregation and if I know him and we have a relationship, then it would be okay for me to pray with him. I'm kind of making up these excuses a little bit, right? And then I look over at my buddy Ryan, who's a Christian, and Ryan looks up at me and he mouths the words, pray for him. He says, pray for him. He's just looking right up at me saying, pray for him. And that was the Holy Spirit's kind of, get in there, buddy. Not because I need to do this as a pastor, but because my friend Ryan said, get over there. Go be a leader. Go step up. And so I went over to Stan and I said, hey, look, and I don't know where Stan's at with the Lord or anything like that. And I just said, hey, can I pray for you? Can I pray for you and your wife? What's your wife's name? I'd love to, I'd love to pray for you. Guys, if you want to pray, I'm going to pray for Stan. And he says, yeah, that'd be great. So I kneel down next to him. We're all super sweaty and stinky, and I put a hand on his shoulder and it's a wet hand, and he's all wet. And I, I pause for a minute, and I close my eyes, and when I open my eyes, I look, and all 11 guys in our group have their hands on Stan. They have their hand on him. They're supporting him. They're with him. And the Holy Spirit's movement through my buddy Ryan saying to me, get over there, go pray for him, then impacted the lives of 11 men yesterday. Not to mention Stan and his wife, who I'll be praying for, who you guys know about, now you can be praying for him. And I don't know what the outcome of that is. Seeds have been planted, and I'm just thankful to have been a part of it. And it was a moment for me to say, Jesus, I trust you with this. This is the today, right? I can't get my arms around everything that's happening right now, but this thing that's in front of me, this moment that you've given to me, I want to step into it. And the river of the Holy Spirit is directing me right here. Thank God my friend said something to me. Praise God that in all my stubbornness, I decided to listen. And there will be moments for each of us in the week ahead. And I don't know if this is going to be true. I just have a feeling this is something the Lord wants me to say. What if every one of us this week took an opportunity to pray for somebody? Just like that. Not glamorous, you don't have to have all the right words, you don't have to have frilly language or quoting Bible verses, although that's great. What if every person in our congregation just had eyes and ears this week to have an eye out for somebody at work, at school, working next to you at the hospital, wherever you go, and you just, it, I know this sounds crazy, but I would like to pray for you. I believe that prayer is really powerful. Can I pray for you? It's a way to serve. It's a gentle entry point. And if somebody says, no, you didn't fail, You didn't fail. You just sowed the seeds. Every person in this congregation has such an influential reach. And if we're people of prayer, if we're following the leading of the Holy Spirit, even if it takes the equivalent of your buddy saying, do you pray for him? Go do it. And go do it to the glory of God, Bethany, because that is how our world, like Galilee, like Capernaum, is going to be changed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we're thankful that you're the Lord of time. Nothing happens that is beyond your eyes and your ears. And so as we've been talking, as we've been listening, we pray that you would stir up in us a desire to be servants through prayer. 
to speak to the hearts of others. I pray for Stan and for his wife. As we were able to pray for them yesterday, we continue to pray as a church for your hand of healing and blessing upon them, for your wisdom to provide them with good care and for good next steps. May they be drawn into your fellowship through even this hard season. God, each of us in the places we're called to go after our time here together, to work, to school, to hospitals, to businesses, to nonprofits, to the home. We'll have opportunity, Lord, and may we rise up to that opportunity this week, even if it's just as simple as praying for somebody that we're connected to. May we do so with hearts that long to serve you and proclaim your name. We ask in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. To invite you to stand as we continue in worship.